Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Uh, my name is Chris Causey. I'm the pastor here. And uh, happy Easter. Uh, this is uh, our favorite day of the year at the church. Uh, we're, we're, not a, we're not a football team, but if we were, this would be the Super Bowl. Um, this is what we're living for, and this is why every other day, um, every other Sunday that we meet is built off of what happened on this one Sunday, um, April 5th, 33 AD. Uh, that, that historical date is the day that uh, a group of women found the tomb that was empty. And uh, this past week, I was talking with my daughter. We were dying Easter eggs, and she asked a question like she does about a lot of things, and it was, Daddy, why in the world do we dye Easter eggs, and what's the deal with Easter? And we've had this kind of conversation multiple times. Like as a parent, um, the first time she lost a tooth, and her friends are losing their teeth, and it's like, uh, oh, what's the tooth fairy? And you're like, oh, well, sweetie, that's a little magical creature that um, you, you take the body part of you that fell off, and you put that under your pillow, and while you're sleeping in the middle of the night, a little tiny magical creature will sneak into your room and slide its hand underneath your pillow inches from your head, and will take the body part that fell off, and will leave you something. Isn't that wonderful? And then, you know, Christmas, and it's like, what's the deal with Santa Claus? Oh, well, that's a really, like, fat, large, jolly man who, who comes in through a chimney. Well, we don't have a chimney. Well, he comes in through like the vent stack for the gas, uh, like the gas uh, stove, and he shimmies down that little thing, and then he comes into our house, and he does the exact opposite of what most people do when they break and entering. Instead of taking things, he leaves you things, and so here I am at the Easter Bunny, and it's like, what about the Easter Bunny? Well, he or she or it is a large, really large bunny that hops around, and it lays eggs, and we... It hides its eggs, which I think is its offspring, and we find those eggs, but they're died. Oh, okay. You know, it's like, this is, what are we doing to our children? Like, I'm like, this girl's going to need counseling. But it's in the midst of like telling all these stories where I'm like, hold up. Like, what am I saying to her? First of all, why are all these things committing felonies? Like, why does that have to be the myths that we tell? Right? And so I'm sitting there, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. And it's just this simple question that shifts my perspective. It's like my, my daughter just says a couple words. Like, what's the deal with the Easter egg? Why are we dying them? And that question shifts my perspective and causes me to look at something differently. And in, in many ways, uh, this in the last couple of weeks, as I've been preparing for this message, I feel like the letter, the book that I've been reading, um, the book of Mark, has been doing the same thing for me. And what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of walk through a journey with you. And I would like to show you a couple words. In fact, in the midst of all the eight verses that we'll read, there's really just two words. And those two words, the presence of those two words, shifted my perspective. And I hope in the course of our next 30 minutes, it shifts yours too and causes you to think about Easter a little differently than maybe perhaps you came in thinking about Easter. Um, as Jason referenced earlier, we've created an app just for you, and you can download it for free, encounterchurch.com forward slash app. And uh, in that app is message notes, and uh, I've already preloaded today's message for you. It's, uh, we're going to be looking at a section of the book of Mark, the last chapter, verses, um, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. And if you don't have the app, you're still downloading. It'll also be on the side screens. But here's the thing I want to kind of set the, the backdrop, well, maybe while you're downloading or clicking. Um, Mark is one of the four biographies 
that we have about Jesus in what's called the New Testament. The, the Bible, the Christian Bible specifically, is um, comprised of the Old Testament, which is a group of uh, Jewish writings, history, doctrine, theology, songs, poems, uh, these things called prophetic literature, like this whole collection, a wide genre of writings in the Old Testament. And then the New Testament is the kind of the, the distinctly Christian portion. It starts with four biographies about Jesus, and then it moves into the story of the thing that Jesus started, which is the church, and all the letters and teachings that were kind of being introduced at that time frame. And that's the New Testament. And so the, the biographies all have a different perspective. They all bring their own vantage point or their audience. Um, you can think about them differently. Uh, Matthew is a distinctly um, Jewish writer. He's writing for a very Jewish audience. He wants them to understand all these things that were insider information pieces. Uh, he's, he would be like sitting at a lecture. When you read the book of Matthew, it's like um, engaging with a Jewish lecture about Jesus. And then uh, you look at Luke, and Luke is like watching a documentary on the History Channel. Luke is a historian. He's interviewing people. It's kind of like a little piece where all these different people are speaking, and, and out of that forms what we, we now call the book of Luke. And then you've got John, and John's like a Netflix documentary, you know, the one about how sugar is turning us into something, or like that. You know, when you're flipping through Netflix and you see, like, they have this their own brand of documentaries. Like, John is that kind of documentary. But then you've got Mark. And Mark is, uh, because of how it's written in the original language, which was Greek, it, if you were to read it in the original language in one sitting, you would, you would recognize that Mark is the action flick of the New Testament. Like there's so much movement and action. In fact, if there were bombs, explosions, or buses that can't go below 50, this is where it would be. It would be in Mark. Like Mark has that kind of vibe. It's fast. It's immediately, suddenly, all of a sudden, quickly. It's like, do, 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 do. And Jesus never stops. Like he's never, he's always talking. He's always moving. He's always healing. He's always doing miraculous things. Like Jesus is like, can't stop, won't stop kind of thing, right? Like he's just always pressing in. And that's Mark. You get to the end of Mark and you're like, <sighs> you're breathing hard. Because that's how fast Mark moves. And Mark gets his material from someone who probably lived his life that way a guy named Peter. Peter is one of the most famous followers of Jesus, and it's Peter and his eyewitness accounts and his times with Jesus that provides the source material for Mark and the letter that Mark writes. And this is important to know because when you read the book of Mark, Peter's name gets mentioned more than any other name. Because Peter is telling Mark about what he saw and what he witnessed. And so this is the last chapter Crucifixion has already happened. Jesus has already been put in the grave. And this is Sunday morning. It says, when the Sabbath was over, and the Jewish Sabbath was Saturday, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. And the reason this matters is that um, Jesus dies a really brutal death, but he dies quickly. Most people, know, most people who get who got crucified back in those days, um, sometimes took days to die. Crucifixion was an agonizingly slow way to kill someone. It was a really brutal way to kill someone. But because of Thursday night, Jesus is crucified Friday um, around noon. Uh, because of Thursday night, Jesus has been beaten multiple times within inches of his life. He passes out from, from physical shock. He loses an incredible amount of blood. So physiologically, Jesus is pretty much, he doesn't have much left. And so when he goes to the cross, after walking um, the third of a mile, carrying a 75-pound weight of his part of the cross, um, by the time he gets there, he's, 
he's exhausted. And then what happens on the midst of the cross um, doesn't allow him to live very long. And so he dies so quickly, it catches everyone off guard. They have to quickly arrange for where is he going to be buried because they assumed he was going to be there for days. So in the midst, they have to borrow a tomb from a rich guy who had started following Jesus. And they quickly take Jesus' body down because as the sun is setting, it's against Jewish law for anyone, to, if they're dead, to be up there. So they've got to get him down quickly because when... When the sun sets, they start to break a Jewish law. So they get his body down quick, and they put him in a tomb, but they don't have time to do all the things that you normally do. Today, we, we do embalming. There's certain things that morticians do that kind of prepare the body. And so all that happens so fast, they just close up the tomb, and, and they say, we'll deal with it on Sunday after Sabbath is over. Saturday night, Sabbath is done, but it's evening. There's not electricity, so the ladies buy the spices, but it's on Sunday morning that they're on their way. And it says, as they're headed on their way, they start to have a conversation. They said to each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Because the stone was really heavy, and they're like, oh, we probably should have thought about it. But they're grief-stricken. They're, it says, but when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, and it had been rolled away. They're like, well, what just happened? So they walk in, trying to figure out why is the stone gone. And as they go in, they see a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. Who's, um, and they were alarmed. And he says, don't be alarmed. He says, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. He was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? He's like, body? Not there. He says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he had told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to no one, to anyone, because they were afraid. And this is how Mark ends. Mark ends in a really kind of unique way. He kind of leaves you with a little bit of a cliffhanger. This is like to be continued next season kind of thing. Like what's going to happen is the way Mark kind of puts you at the edge of your seat as he finishes up. We see the women shocked. They're stunned. They're not even sure what to do, which is exactly what you and I would do, right? I mean, if someone bust into your house this afternoon and said, hey, you know that person we went to high school with? Yeah, I remember them. Well, the craziest thing just happened. We had their funeral Friday. We put them in the grave. But you will not believe who just texted me and showed up at my house. Him. It's like, what are you smoking? Like, no, there's no one showing up. Like, he's dead. Dead people do not come back from the dead. Like, so they are stunned. They don't know what to do. As a mentor of mine says, nobody expected to find nobody. 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 Right? Like, this is weird. And so they're walking in shock, and they finally come together, and they kind of coalesce, because we know this from other accounts. They show up where the disciples are gathered, and their faces are white, and they're like, you're not going to believe what just happened, and they're like, what just happened? Jesus, what? What about Jesus? He's alive. No, he, what is, where, where have you guys been? The bars don't open for another few hours. Like, what have you been drinking? I mean, I think we, we are so, sometimes we get so familiar with this idea, even if we didn't grow up in church, we're familiar with the concept that Easter is about Jesus coming back from the dead, and we, we don't really reflect on that, like, and, and real, it's weird. And so their response is probably what our response would be, it's a little bit of disbelief. 
And so they're trying to tell the story, and they're like, okay, so we go, and the tomb is empty. In fact, they, they don't even believe them. They run, and they find out it's the same. And they're in the midst, okay, tell us what happened. What happened? Well, we walk in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when we get there, there's this guy. And are you sure that guy wasn't Jesus? No, it's not Jesus. I know what Jesus looks like. You know what Jesus looks like? It doesn't, if I'd have taken a selfie with him, maybe you'd realize it. But I was a little kind of caught off guard because dead men don't get up. So I didn't pull out my camera and snap a selfie with the guy who's hanging out in the dead man's tomb. And so, yes, it's someone else. And what he says is, like, he's not here. He is risen. And he says, go tell his disciples. Okay, so what did he tell you? He said, well, he said, go tell his disciples and Peter that I have gone ahead to Galilee. This is crazy. And I think, because remember, this is Peter telling Mark about this moment that captures that Mark is writing. So I'm, I'm picturing while I'm reading this, Mark sitting across from whatever they sat across in the first century and whatever the equivalent would be of a coffee shop. And they're sitting there and Peter is telling Mark, here's what I experienced, here's what I saw. And, and Mark is writing and then Peter gets kind of emotional and he stops. He says, go tell his disciples and Peter. Think about it. They've told you what they've heard. And what they've heard is that Jesus explicitly said, tell the disciples and Peter to go ahead in Galilee. I think when Peter heard the words and Peter from those women, it burst through the shock. Last year, I was watching um, an interview between Megan Kelly and Anderson Cooper. And Megan Kelly was promoting her book that she'd just written. And uh, they were talking about specifically one uh, moment in her life, this very poignant, powerful moment in her life where um, she said her most defining moment occurred. And it was when she was 15 years old and uh, she had gotten into an argument with her father about a high school ring because when you're 15, that's a really big thing. And, uh, and so she's screaming at her father, and the last thing she says to him is, I hate you, and then she storms upstairs, and she closes the door, and she lays in her bed, and she just goes to sleep angry. And as she storms up the steps, he's laying on the couch, the same place he'd been. And the next morning when she wakes up, um, she finds out that just a few hours after, she had stormed up the steps just 10 days before Christmas. He had a heart attack and he passed away. And Megan Kelly's sitting there talking about this moment. And I'm watching a woman, a very successful woman, transported through time. And it's like 25 years hasn't even passed. The pain of those words, I hate you is still just as raw and visceral in that moment as it was two decades ago. Like she was dealing with this pain and this grief and this agony that she couldn't take her words back. And that she really loved them, but she didn't get to tell them she loved them. She stormed out and said, I hate you. And then never got to say a single thing again. And watching Megan Kelly deal with the, just the sheer weight of that after 25 years, captures the heart of what Peter was experiencing when those women broke through and they said, and Peter. Because three days prior to this moment, it's Thursday, four days, 
And Jesus has an idea of what's coming. He's like, guys, you need to know that there's some things that are going to happen. Um, it's, it's going to get bad for me, and they're going to try to arrest me. And Peter's like, no, 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 Jesus. I got your back. I got a sword. I will straight up cut somebody if they try to mess with you. I got you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, Peter, here's the thing. Um, yeah, you're going to deny me. You're going to, like, deny me. You're, you're not going to stand up for me. You're going to not even acknowledge that you know who I am. And Peter's like, I would never do that. I'm, I'm always going to be there for you, Jesus. I am like faithful I'm by your side. And then a few hours later, they're praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and soldiers walk in, and they arrest Jesus. And they carry him off. And all of a sudden, all these faithful, loyal followers just kind of scatter because they don't want to get arrested. And Peter hangs back, and he's kind of walking a little bit of a distance, and Jesus is led through a series of sham trials in midst of all the different officials in uh, first century Jerusalem at the time, and Peter is always just in earshot because he wants to know what's happening, but he's terrified. Now, Peter is from Galilee, and that's where Jesus grows up most of his life as well, and Galilee had a very distinct accent. Uh, to, to have a Galilean accent in its day would have been the equivalent of maybe having a southern accent today in America. It, it just stood out. It was different, and people noticed it. And so when Peter is following along, it, he's standing there, and the first time somebody walks by, and they're like, hold up, I recognize you. You were that guy with Jesus because they had been in the garden. And he's like, no, I don't know who Jesus is. He moves over here, and he's trying to listen in, and he's talking, and somebody hears his accent. They're like, no, 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 no. That's a Galilean accent. You're one of his, aren't you? And he's like, no, I'm not one of his. I don't know him. And then he walks over here, and they're like, I, I think, say something. Say y'all. See, I told you. He's one of those guys. And he gets so upset, and he gets so angry. He's like, I don't bleeping know that man. He literally curses. There's so much passion, so much anger. And in that moment, Jesus, who's just right over there, hears him, looks at him, and Peter looks at Jesus knowing that Peter, every word he said, Jesus had heard. And the same way that Megan Kelly felt, I think was the same way Peter felt. The pain and the agony and the disappointment of his decisions and what he had done and the fact that he had said all of those things to Jesus and he could never take them back and that would be the last thing Jesus ever heard him say. And the weight of that. And so when those women break through and they say to him, and Peter, I think the pain, the, the agony, the chains around his wrist from the choices he had made fell off because the disconnection, the separation that had been there was now gone. With two words. Jesus had wanted to see me. And we can, we can read this text and, and so just kind of quickly go through it and miss that if we could see these words, it's at this point and Peter where literally the text would bend because of the weight of emotion pressing down on it. It's so heavy. 
and Peter. And, and Peter, something happens inside of him in that moment because Peter, the guy who couldn't hold it together, the guy who had been flaky, the guy who had talked a big game but couldn't stay true to Jesus in the end, this guy would go on and become one of the church's earliest and greatest leaders. And when he gets to the end of his life, there's now a new emperor, and it's around 60 AD, so almost 27 years after Jesus is crucified. He's brought before Nero in Rome, and Nero orders him to be crucified. But Peter stands up and says, I understand that you've given me the death penalty, but I am not worthy to be crucified the way that my Lord was crucified, and so you're going to have to turn the cross upside down and crucify me that way. Because I'm not worthy to die the same way Jesus died. Like the guy who could not even acknowledge Jesus the night Jesus was arrested. The night when he's arrested, he's not even worthy to die the same way. Something had happened in him. Something had changed in him. And this is why I think when Mark and Peter are sitting there, Peter wants to make sure that and Peter gets added. Because none of the other accounts have and Peter. They skip over it because disciples are good enough. Disciples catch it. Peter's in the disciples. So, and all the disciples, tell them to meet me. But Peter's like, no, they miss it. If they don't know he said, and Peter, they, they will miss what was going on there and the power and the weight of what was being said. And it's not just about me, Mark. It's not just about me. It's about the people who will read this one day because I need them to know that what I experienced that Easter, they can experience every single day of their life. I want them to know that it's not just the reality of my story, but it's the reality of what can happen in their story too. And that while you and I may not be able to relate to the specific pain of denying Jesus face to face, we can all relate to the pain of regret and choices and decisions and with our actions of denying Jesus. We can all relate to shame and guilt and separation, and the disconnect, and wearing chains from our past decisions that constantly haunt us. All of us can relate to that, that agony that happens on the inside of something missing and something lacking. Like We can relate to Peter that way, because we all are Peter that way. He's like, I, I want them to hear it. I want them to know it. It's because what Peter was trying to translate across time was the fact that, look, while I had a symptom this way, our symptoms may look different, but it's the same sickness underneath all of it. My denial of Jesus, my shame, my guilt is just one symptom of a bigger overarching thing, this sickness that Jesus came for the first place to do. It's the same. We all have the same source, even if the struggle looks different. They all have the same reason of sickness. And that's why Jesus came at Easter. And that's what I want them to know. So I think he's pressing into Mark. Mark, make sure you put in Peter. Because here's what pain will do. I think pain is a gift. I think pain, whether it's emotional, mental, relational, physical, or spiritual, pain's purpose is to point out to us something is not right. Isn't that what pain is? It's our body, it's our brain communicating to us something isn't the way it's supposed to be. Something is lacking. Something is missing. Something isn't right. And that's true across every domain where we experience pain. 
It's a communication from our brain to tell us something's not right. The world's not the way it's supposed to be, and I'm not either. And what Jesus came to do was Jesus didn't come to treat the symptom of pain. He didn't come to be a pain reliever. He came to come and be a pain solver. He came to treat the sickness that is at source of all the pain in all of our lives. And see, this is where it's interesting because the Jewish theologians at the time, their idea of Jesus or the Messiah when he comes is he's going to treat the symptoms. He's going he's to fix all the surface things that's wrong with our lives. But, he's, but what they missed was that Jesus understood, what God recognized that the, the human sickness was not the circumstances we found ourselves in. It was who we were. The greatest enemy is not someone outside the gate or a Roman government that's over kind of overbearing and pressing in. The greatest enemy that you and I have is the person we see in the mirror every day. Think about who has robbed the most from you in your life? You. Who have made the choices that you most regret in your life? You. At the end of the day, most of the pain, and I'm not saying all, but most of those choices in our lives that we regret started with us as the subject and that sentence. And that Jesus came not to deal with the symptom, but to deal with the sickness. So I was driving down the road a few years back, and um, I'm in the countryside, and I'm noticing this massive cow pasture as I'm driving. I'm like, man, this is a massive cow pasture. Like, I'm not a cow expert, and I'm not a cow, but if I was, I'm thinking this is like the Ritz-Carlton of, like, cow world. Because I'm driving, and I'm like, this thing is massive. There is green grass everywhere. There is huge water troughs. Like, this thing is sweet. It's like you know, the grass is greener on the other side. Like, it actually was true there. Like, it really was greener. And I'm like, wow, I don't know what cow frolicking looks like, but I have never in my life seen a more frolicable field than this field that I'm seeing right here. And when you frolic in this field, like, this field was so massive, it then had a gate that opened up to another large field. I'm like, these cows are not even at the Ritz-Carlton. They're at, like, the penthouse at the Ritz-Carlton, because you know you're fancy when you walk in and your hotel room is hotel rooms, right? And this cow has rooms. And I'm driving down. I'm like, man, it must be nice to be that cow. And I'm still driving and I'm looking and I know I'm weird because I'm having all these weird conversations in my head. I get it. Okay. And I'm driving. And then I notice something. I'm like, hold up. I don't think them cows are for milking because I'm noticing on their ear, this little stamp. I'm like, I don't think those are the drinking cows. I think those are the eating cows. Like they turn into burgers, not milkshakes. And, and as I'm driving, it hits me. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is a picture of what Jesus came to do at Easter. Because so often in our lives, if we're those cows, we could get caught up and we could fall into the trap like some cows have done in this world, actually, where we're like, oh, if I just had a bigger pen, if I had a, I don't know, maybe if my, maybe if my like, pasture was AC, with some heat, you know, that'd be a little nice, or maybe some traveling art exhibits of different cow poses, and maybe there's Chick-fil-A advertisements, and, you know, and I'm driving down, and, like, you know, and maybe we could have some, like, classical cow music, and, um, you know, and, like, MC Moo, and all, you know, playing over that, like, you know, then it would be awesome, then my life would be complete, then everything would be great and grand, like, I would love that kind of cow life, 
be like Kobe beef, you know, get the massage and have the classical music played, hand fed and given words of affirmation like your shirt, your coat is very shiny. Your head is so perfectly round. Your ears are so pointed and pleasant. Like we could speak these positive words that would bring cow life up out of them. Right. But what Jesus comes is not there to fix their symptoms, because at the end of the day, those cows still became a hamburger on my plate. So it doesn't matter how nice and how better it is in cow world. The reality is they still ended up on my plate. And this is ultimately what is happening at Easter. This is why Jesus comes. He comes to deal with the deeper sickness, the spiritual disconnection that you and I have with God. That is at the source and at the root of all the other symptoms in our life. It's because we're spiritually disconnected. Because there's that disconnection, we are selfish towards others. We can't even live out and fulfill the one command to love others the way we want to be loved. We, because of that disconnection, we can't have the peace and the joy that we long for. Though we recognize somewhere inside we were made for purpose, we were made for peace, we were made for joy because we thirst for it, we hunger for it. When you were a baby, no one had to teach you that there's something called milk. Your thirst did. It made you hungry for something. And you didn't have to be given a PowerPoint to show you and prove to you you were made for it. And the desires that we have for purpose and joy and peace and love and relationship, those things are those thirst and hunger from our soul that we were made to have. And because of our disconnection, we don't experience them. And so what does Jesus do? He steps into planet earth. He dies on a cross. And in dying on the cross, he breaks the power that separates us from God. And he comes back from the dead in doing so, opening up a channel and a portal for you and I to spiritually reconnect. And when we spiritually reconnect, we experience something that Peter had experienced. New life. You see... At the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we are introduced to Peter, and his name is not Peter then. His name is Simon. Simon is the first disciple that we see in the book of Mark, and Simon was a wordplay. Simon was given that name at birth, but he should have, it was kind of, they, they just had an idea, I guess, because Simon meant a little flaky, it meant pebble, it meant kind of small, it meant a little insignificant. Simon was a guy who would talk a big game, but he wouldn't show up and back it up. Simon's the guy who would tell you, oh, I'll be at that date, I'm going to get there at Seven o'clock at the restaurant, and he never shows. Simon's the guy who, and I know nobody can relate to this, but Simon's the guy who's like, honey, I'll get to that project this weekend. And has said that for the last 12 weekends. Simon's the guy who's got 15 tabs up, and nothing's getting resolved. He's a great starter, but he's a horrible finisher. That's Simon. That's why he bails on Jesus the night Jesus is arrested. And yet... When Jesus calls his name, he says, Peter. And Peter. Why? Because Jesus is saying to him, I, because of what I have done, you can be new. You do not have to be defined by who you were, where you came from. You can be defined by where you're heading and what I have done. And what I love about this is that that, that day, those ladies burst into the room and said, you will not believe what happened. Those guys had a ton of questions and doubts. And when Peter got to the end of his life, I'm sure he still had doubts and questions there too. And the reality is, is that doubts and questions do not have to hold us back from being spiritually connected to God. 
The same things that we oftentimes, that we think prevents us from taking a step of faith towards God or maybe starting to explore what does it mean to be spiritually reconnected with him. The same doubts and struggles that we think could be a barrier could actually be a benefit to our faith because if we press in to doubts and to questions, oftentimes what we discover is answers. But you don't have to have every question answered to know that Jesus is the answer at Easter. And that's why in May, I'm, gonna, I'm looking forward to the series, um, I'm going to have a series called May I Ask You a Question. And in the app um, and at encounterchurch.com forward slash question um, is a spot for you to put your questions and your doubts. You just type them in. You're not going to give your name. I'm not going to have your IP address where I can track you down. It's just you put your doubt in your question because I'm sure that you're like me. You have some. And what I would like to do is over the course of May, I want to press into the questions that you have about faith. Because those things don't have to hold you back from becoming spiritually reconnected with God. Because that's what Easter brought. Because at the end of the day, I think Mark leaves us at this point in the gospel for a reason. There's a reason that Mark kind of brings it up to this stopping point, And instead of bringing resolution, instead of bringing closure, he leaves it open-ended. Through the entire gospel, Mark has written in present tense. He's written in this fast-paced language. And he's doing this weird literary device throughout the 16 chapters. And he does it again here in chapter 16. He, he causes the reader to reflect on them. He causes the reader to have to say, okay, this isn't, this isn't something you watch and spectate. This is a skit you participate in. He's like, I want you to step into this thing. I want you to experience this thing. I want you to think about the questions because I've just given you the biggest if in human history. If Jesus is alive, then it changes everything. If Jesus is not alive, then it changes everything. If Jesus is not alive, If he's dead, then we should shut this thing down, turn it into an event space, because it's got some sweet speakers, and and, and us just stop doing this on Sunday. Seriously. Sunday mornings, man, Lionel Richie said it. It's easy. It's nice. Like, we're wasting our time if he's not alive. And this is where Mark leaves it. He leaves it with this big if, because he wants you and I to wrestle through it. He says, if. And he uses this word, he uses this language to draw us into the if. But I think here's another way of describing what Mark had done. Imagine if the way we listen to music was this way, with sheet music. We drove down the road, put this on our dashboard, right? And you're like, oh, girl, I got something for you. That's right. Little new kids on the block, the right stuff. Yeah, taking you back, right? And and it's like, oh, no, let it go. That's not mine. That's Ella's, I promise, right? And we're just, imagine if this is how we did music. Couldn't roll down the window because the papers would fly out. We'd walk down the street with headphones stuck inside these things. I'm not sure how that would play out. And this is it. It's like, oh, man, have you heard this new song? Have you heard this? Have you read this new song? This song is awesome. Listen, oh, oh, yeah, mm. Oh, oh, the, the, the baseline, the baseline. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, 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 it's hold, oh, dropping, dropping again. All right, imagine that's how we did it. No. That is how we do it, right? This is so much better than this. You see, no one, no one reads sheet music and gets filled with emotion. 
But they listen to that and they do. No one reads sheet music and, and want to move their body. But you hear that and you're like, oh yeah, I got rhythm. I didn't even know I had rhythm, right? And it just starts happening. You don't get sheet music stuck in your head, but you get a song stuck in your head. And I think that what Mark was trying to do was Mark was trying to invite us in. He's like, look, for so many of you, so many of us, we get caught up and we get bought into the idea that it's just sheet music. There's just words on a page. But in the end, it's not sheet music. It's a song. Christianity was never meant to be right. Easter was never about some man coming just from back from the dead. Like it was not just a great story. It was a way of life that because of that moment, we could live differently. Because the big if of Easter has happened, I can experience life differently. And is it possible that maybe some of you have pushed back on Christianity because in the end of the day, what you, all you experienced growing up was sheet music? And you never heard the song. And you never tasted the beat. And you never felt it move you and propel you and cause you to do and say things. Like, is it possible that for many of us, our spiritual disconnection, that we think Christianity can't be the answer, is because we never heard the song, we just read the sheet music. And I think this is why Mark leads and leaves us in this space and in this place for that reason. Because he wanted us to realize that Christianity is a lot like that. It's not sheet music. It's a song. Resurrection is not sheet music. It's not sentences on a page. It's not just words about Jesus being alive at Easter. But it's the way I can live my life every single day. It means that shame and guilt. It, it means that depression. It means that the darkness and the addictions do not have to define me. It means that the family traits in which I came from do not have to become the fate in which I live. It means that death, I look at death differently. I can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and I can fear no evil. Why? Because I know that the one who has conquered death has called me by name. He has said, and Peter and Chris. And if that is true, if the resurrecting one can do that, then is it possible he can do that in my life? Is it possible that I can have purpose, that I can be generous, that I can serve sacrificially, that I can give out of who I am because I've got more to give because of what he's doing inside of me? It, uh, is it possible that there is more to the song than just the sheet music? And that Mark wanted us to experience this, and that's why Peter says you've got to put and Peter because when you get that he wins, it changes everything you find yourself in. Every single time. You treat your kids differently. You treat your coworkers differently. You do marriage differently. You have patience. You have joy. You have like kindness in your words. Because you believe what these women discovered that day was an empty tomb. And because it was an empty grave, it means I'm no longer a slave to the things that have held me back in my life. I am no longer my greatest enemy because he has spoken over me. And my name is not Simon anymore, it's Peter. And I would encourage you. This is what Easter is. And this is what Easter is about. And I put in the app a connection card. I put a question because I recognize for some of you, maybe you're wrestling through this. And if you have questions about faith, or maybe you're wondering, how do I become a Christian? Or what does it look like to explore it? I've got doubts and fears. Then 
click on the connection card, swing by starting point, and just say, hey, here's my name, here's my email. I, I have some questions about faith. And I will send you some resources to help you process through what does it mean to live in the reality and the aftermath of an empty grave? Because at the end of the day, what Peter experienced that Easter is what you and I can experience every Easter and every day in the in-between. Let's pray.